You're listening to That Music Podcast with me, Bryson Tarbett. I'm the music educator and blogger behind That Music Teacher and ThatMusicTeacher.com. Join me as I dive into what it really means to be a music educator. I hope that you're able to find a nugget of inspiration each week as I share my favorite ways to create purposeful instruction through active music making. Along the way, you'll hear from some of my amazing colleagues as they share practical advice that you can apply to your own classrooms. So grab a coffee, sit down, and let's get started. This episode is brought to you by That Music Teacher Store. From t-shirts to mugs to stickers and more, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com store to get all of your music teacher needs. From a shirt to wear on Casual Friday to a mug to let your coffee go cold on your desk as you teach your kids, you'll find everything you need at That Music Teacher Store. To check out the full collection, head to thatmusicteacher.com store. This interview with Betha Most is one that I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, Betha is someone that I work with at my elementary school, and she's a wonderful educator who specializes in teaching students who are learning English. And I've really wanted to have this conversation on a podcast because it's something that we really don't learn about a lot in undergrad. And then we kind of get dropped into this. And a lot of us are in very similar situations like I am, where we have a lot of students in our classrooms that may or may not speak the language we speak, um, which can be definitely a challenge. Um, so I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation with Betha Most. Betha Most is an English language teacher located near Columbus, Ohio. She graduated from Goshen College in Indiana with a degree in elementary education and ended up teaching adult ESL classes in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for two years. After returning home, she got her TESOL endorsement from Capital University, and she's taught K-12 EL for eight years and currently teaches kindergarten through fourth grade. In her free time, Beth enjoys hiking, baking, and traveling as much as possible. Without further ado on my part, here's a wonderful conversation with Betha Most. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to That Music Podcast. I am so excited for this episode because I have the amazing Betha Moss here to talk about English language learners in the, the overall school setting. And then we're going to kind of focus in a little bit and talk about um, English learners in the music classroom. So I'm really excited for Betha to talk. So Betha, thank you for joining me today. No problem. Glad to be here. <laughs> And if you don't know, Betha actually teaches at the elementary school that I teach, which is so exciting um, to have someone that I actually like know um, and like work with on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. All right, Betha, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, and then where and what you're teaching now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up here close to Columbus, Ohio. Um, I went to college, I went to a really tiny, like church school in Kansas for two years. And then I ended up transferring to another school in Indiana for my undergrad. Um, I got my license in elementary education. And right now I am teaching ESL and I am this year, finally K through four only, (laughs) Because I had done, when I first started this district, I was K through 12 and then gradually moved to K through 8 and then finally K through 4. So I'm super excited about that. I know. And we're so excited to have you in our building (laughs) and only our building. It's amazing. I get to have lunch with the same people every day. It's crazy. Oh, I know. (laughs) So other than teaching, what's something that you're really passionate about that brings joy to your life? Oh, man. Um... I really love to travel, which has been kind of a bummer the last year and a half, but I love to travel as much as I can. Every summer I try to leave the country. Um, 
I love to bake. I love to cook. Probably before COVID, I was super involved in a refugee outreach program in Columbus. So that was something I really loved. And that's probably what I'm most passionate about. But it's been shut down (laughs) since COVID. So hopefully that'll start up again soon. Oh, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. So let's go ahead and dive in because I know that my listeners have asked me a lot um, about questions about English learners in the classroom. So let's start off by saying, what is the proper language when referring to students who might speak a different language at home or um, but are learning English at school? Because I know that the terminology in like the educational world has changed a lot, even since I've been around. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so yes. what is what is the proper language we should we should kind of refer to these? Oh these my students goodness! As? Yeah, it has changed so much. Well, they started when schools first started having programs, it was limited English proficient students, LEP, which was not great because that's just focusing on deficiency rather than what they have. Um, But then it switched to ELL, which is English language learners. And then it switched to English learners. And then most recently I heard it's switching again to multilingual learners. So (laughs) I'm still calling them ELs. Um, it kind of depends on the state you're into. I know in Indiana, it was English as a new language was the proper terminology for the class and the students, but it just kind of depends on the state you're in. But I still say English learners. Interesting. Yeah. I know that there's been a lot of like terminology shift around. Um, and I feel like, especially when we're talking about kids, we should just refer to them as kids whenever possible, you know, by name or like (laughs) the students in this, but like, obviously at some point there has to be, there, there, there's an interesting way or it it kind of, it could be helpful to refer to a a specific population of students that receive certain services. So I think it's important to kind of clear up. Yeah. Yep. So you'll hear EL most often. And then MLL is the new one. If you ever hear that around. I don't think I've ever even heard that. Yeah. It's new this summer. already. So about that, how did you end up teaching ESL or English language learners or English learners? How how did you end up in this position? Yeah, so I my mom is a teacher. She taught seventh grade my whole life. Um, so I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then I got my licensure in uh, elementary education. So in Indiana, it was K through five, I believe. Um, And then after college, I didn't really know what to do with myself. So I joined a voluntary service program and I ended up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, teaching at a refugee resettlement agency. And so I taught adult ESL for two years, I believe. And I loved it so much. I always thought I would um, go overseas to teach at some point, but I realized I can have just the whole world come to me and have lots of different cultures and lots of different languages um, in one classroom. So that's where I really fell in love with it was doing that. Um, but then I ran out of money because that was a volunteer position and I came back home and got a job at a charter school that was mostly, uh, Somali refugee kids. And I ended up getting my TESOL endorsement while I was there and then left that school. I subbed for a while and then got this job. How cool. I had no idea that that was your journey. I literally, I don't think we've had, I mean, especially since you just now being at this school, we haven't had much time to actually talk about how you ended up where you are. So that's really cool. And I I think you bring up a really good point, you know, where you can have the world come to you Mm -hmm. in your classroom. Um, Because that's one thing that I'm blown away, even out 
um, just outside of Columbus where we are, there's so much diversity mm-hmm. in our classrooms uh, when you really start looking for it, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's so much fun. So, Betha, why is it important for teachers of all subject areas to be aware that our English learners, one, like who they are and, and what they that they might have some unique needs? Yeah, I think... When I think of English learners, I just see so much potential in each child. And it's just up to the teacher. Once you can unlock that potential, they can go so far. But I've also seen kids just kind of languishing in a classroom when the teacher doesn't really know what to do um, or doesn't make any effort to help them. So I just think it's just so important. And it makes such a big difference when you try to unlock the potential because they have so much there. Um, There was some recent data they shared at our annual ESL meetings for the state was that a lot of the kids who were former EL students, like they tested out of the program, they outperform uh, monolingual students on state tests, which I was just blown away by. And it just shows how much potential there is there. So I am very passionate about teachers being able to reach those students for sure. I, I think you bring up a good point when you when you sum it up with saying teachers reaching the students because like you said earlier when we you know focusing not on the deficit but focusing on what the students have is a lot of these students are coming in fluent or pretty near fluent in another language. Mm-hmm. So it's there's not that they don't necessarily have the skills, it's just they don't necessarily have the skills in English. And that's where I think it can come down to the teachers being able to best understand how to help those students be successful because like you said there are some great students that really excel and can really apply themselves. It's just, you need to learn some simple things to help them be successful in your classroom, especially if you don't speak the language that they Mm -hmm. speak most of the time. Yeah, exactly. So you talked a little bit about um, testing out of the program, at least here in Ohio. um, What is the program that we have? You know, like what, what is the process kind of look like and, you know, what services are districts, um, more or less mandated to give and what services um, do students give or students receive, at least here in Ohio? Yeah. So it is different in every state, but in Ohio, um, at enrollment, when a new student comes to school or in kindergarten, they the parents will fill out a language usage survey, which asks questions about what's the home language, what other languages are spoken at home, what did your child learn first? And if they answer anything besides English to any of those questions, that signals me that I need to either check records if they transferred in from somewhere else, or I need to give them our state screener for English. So after I do the screener, then they are either pass the screener or they don't. If they're in kindergarten, most of the time they don't because it is very difficult. (laughs) Um, But after they do that, then they will be in EL services. And then it's up to each school to determine the best way to do those services. Um, For us, we are fortunate that we can uh, do a pull out program with all the kids. I'm so glad we can do that. Um, A lot of schools are so short staffed and too many kids that sometimes kids don't get services or it's just push in and nothing else, which is appropriate for some kids, but not for most. So we are pretty fortunate. And then every February, they take the um, Ohio English Language Proficiency Test. And depending on those scores, they will either 
continue to be in the program the next year or they'll test out and then they're good to go. If they are scored proficient in, if they score proficient in that test, that means that they are able to function in a classroom as well as their peers with any normal classroom supports. So I love that you bring up that the test in February because it's always kind of like a running joke that in February that's that don't look for Betha yeah. because she's always administering this test. But I think it's really important for why I mean I I, I gotta give Ohio props that we, you know, if if any of those questions on that questionnaire is not English, mm-hmm. then that triggers some more tests or, or some more information seeking. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important to note that a student might have really good social English, yes. but that academic piece is really important. Obviously at school, you know, you, you might be able to have full on conversations in English, but if you can't grasp the academic concepts um, or how, how to process that information, then you, obviously you're not going to be very successful. So that's where I think, again, I think our district does really well mm-hmm. on allowing for a pullout or push it or whatever's best for the student um, to help them really achieve not just a a social understanding of the language, but an academic understanding Mm -hmm. of how to use English to learn other things, which I think is really important, obviously, in a school. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So in the past, you've led PD sessions for our school and our district about different stages of language development, um, particularly when it comes to students who are English learners. What are these major stages and why are they important? Yeah. So the first important thing to know, like you were just saying, is that there is a difference between social English and academic English for sure. Um, And research shows that it takes about three-ish years to become fluent in any social uh, interaction. But then it could take up to five to seven years to be fluent in academic situations. So it is completely different. And I I have a lot of teachers ask me like, oh, that kid is still with you. I thought like we can have conversations. I don't understand why he's still <laughs> taking ESL classes. And I always say, well, his academic language is not the same as the social. So that is the first important part uh, for sure. And then the stages of acquisition, um, there are five or six stages, depending on where you look. Uh, But basically, it goes from pre-emergent to advanced fluency. Um, Pre-emergent stage is when, it's also called the silent period sometimes. So it's just when a kid is just absorbing information, not really trying to speak at all. That can last I, don't, I feel like some kids never have a silent period. And then I've had students who had it for a year and then they came out of it and were speaking full sentences, which was wild. Um, so that stage, yeah, it can just last however long it takes. It really depends on the student and how comfortable they are, their personality, um, how outgoing they are, all kinds of factors. Um, and then gradually they start adding more language. The stage after that is when Uh, They might start trying to attempt some words. They might repeat words a lot just randomly. So it'll sound kind of crazy because they're just repeating random things that they hear, but they're really just absorbing the language. Um, And then gradually they can speak really simple sentences. You can have a really simple conversation. And then they move on to beginning fluency, intermediate fluency, and advanced fluency. Um, So the beginning fluency is where they can have those social conversations and it seems like they're getting more and more fluent. They might not, they might make some errors, but overall they can kind of keep up with what's going on. 
And then in the intermediate stage is when they're really starting to grasp the academic language. And then full fluency is after that. I, th- I think it is wild. That, you know, here in those stages, we see such parallels to just language acquisition for your first language. Yeah. You know, obviously you're listening a lot and then you're just kind of babbling. You're just repeating things. You're, that, but then you kind of gradually get more and more comfortable, more and more understanding different levels. And I, I think it's really interesting to see how language acquisition for a first language and a secondary language mimic each other so closely. But then there's also this aspect of time where obviously, you know, if you're starting a language at 10 years old, you're probably not going to have the same timeline when you, Mm -hmm. when you were learning your first language. Um, And then on the other side of things, it's so much easier to learn a new language as a child because of our, you know, our brain's plasticity than it is to learn, (laughs) learn another language as an adult, which I think is just wild. Um, And just, you know, from a completely geeky, point of view thinking about our students who speak multiple languages and thinking of just you know the brain organization of their brain of how that works is so fascinating Mm -hmm. yeah it really is and how fluent they are in their first language really is going to affect how quickly the process moves for the second which I also find fascinating because kids who have more of their first language especially more academic first language they can make parallels with the language they're trying to learn so it can go a little faster which is always so interesting to me to see <laughs> who is at what stage for sure yeah. and like you're you're saying all these stages and i know that i can think of so many of our, of our shared <laughs> yep. students that like like you said we have some students that they're very quiet they they don't talk much for years and then they get going and then there are some students that all of a sudden they're just like all right i'm here now i'm gonna speak mm-hmm. english like we're gonna i'm not gonna stop talking which i yep. love and i absolutely love and it's it's so interesting to see that everyone progresses at a little different um different speed because i mean that's let's be honest we're all different people yeah. we're all in different situations exactly that's exactly right so shifting gears a little bit, bringing what we know about language acquisition into the music classroom. Uh, I know a lot of what happens in my classroom is very visual and very auditory. Like I teach a lot by mm-hmm. rote or use picture icons and things to help. How can this be helpful for, for our students who are learning English? Oh, it is so, so helpful. The fact that even just repeating the same thing over and over, like to learn or for your performances or whatever, it is so helpful to hear things multiple times um, to really get it. And just songs by nature. I mean, how many songs can you remember from when you were a little, little kid (laughs) that you still have in your brain now? That is such a good way to learn a language. Um, And just learning the phrases and what words should sound like together. It's really, really helpful. And the visual aspect is so important because that provides a lot of context for what they're trying to do, um, which is just hugely important. <laughs> if you don't have context, you yeah, don't know what's going on. Exactly. I think about like how much, you know, I don't speak English or I do speak English. <laughs> I don't speak Italian or German, but I did a lot of singing in Italian and German in undergrad yep. and pretty all the Italian or German I know is stuff from songs. So, I mean, I, I see that connection with the songs, but then with also coming to back to the visual thing, you know, if you go to Rosetta Stone or Duolingo, yep. so much of it is visual. 
visually connected because again adding that context you know you're hearing the word and you're seeing the picture and you're seeing the spelling it's coming at it from all different ways which can be really helpful in developing though that that understanding and that, that memory and the kind of the the fluency that you need to successfully know another language yeah for sure i i mean i took spanish when i was in maybe sixth grade is when i started and I still remember the little chants that he would do. Like, that's how I can remember certain things in Spanish is just because of the chants that we learned. So it's amazing how it works like that. And I'm going to shift gears here for a little bit, a second, go a little <laughs> bit off script. But I, I mean, the school we worked at has um, a fairly large percentage of students who speak, either speak Spanish at home or from Hispanic descent. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially those for those students, but even for those students who, who are, you know, not from Hispanic descent, being able to sing in Spanish or do some chants in Spanish is really helpful. It's, it provides context. It provides some, some different, uh, a view into a different culture than their own, but also to those students that are from Hispanic descent. Like, I mean, I had one student that they, they, they I mean, the Zapatito Blanco, I don't know oh, if, you, yeah. if you're familiar <laughs> with that elimination. Did. I had no idea it existed. And they saw the kid, the kids doing it one day. And I'm like, I need you to show me that. I'm going to use that forever. And like, it's so cool to see the similarities and kind of how culture music and language all weave together in a really cool yeah, way. It's awesome. And they love it when they can do a Spanish song or something in Spanish in any other class. They get so, ex- most of them get so excited about it, um, which I just love to see happen. <laughs> I still remember last year when I don't remember what it was a chant or a, or a song in Spanish. Um, it was one of the kindergartners and they go, Mr. Tarby, you speak Spanish? And I said, no, just a little bit. And she goes, and I go, what was it? Did you think that was cool? And she goes, no. <laughs> and you could tell she was just trying to be so nice and be like, that Spanish was really Not bad. So good. Thank you for trying. <laughs> um, but I, I think, but again, I, I love being able to see those students light up when even I'm making an attempt to speak Spanish um, or even sometimes, like I said, they'll, they'll teach us stuff, which I think yeah. is a really cool way to allow them to be ambassadors of their culture when they want it's to be. It's so great. And I just love to encourage the kids, like you have to keep your Spanish. I hate when it, I see that the kids are get older and they don't use Spanish as much or they try to fit in and it, they, uh, this is a problem probably more years ago, they, we didn't have quite as many Hispanic children. Um, and so they would try to hide their Spanish or they wouldn't bring it out. So I love to encourage them to use it as much as they can. And when they can see it being used in other situations, it really helps because it really will help them in the future if they can keep both languages. For sure. I mean, I being able to bilingual, being bilingual is an, <laughs> an amazing skill. It can be super yeah. helpful. Um, but I think like you kind of said, kind of normalizing speaking in other languages, even if you, you know, you might not necessarily know the language, being aware that, that that's a thing that happens. And this is a thing that, you know, is, is, is normal. It's not atypical. It's just, it's just a little bit different than what you know. And that's okay. Exactly. Yes. So, so Beth, what can we as music teachers do to actually set up our classrooms? So either physical, our physical spaces or our lessons to allow our English learners to be more successful. Yeah. Um, the first thing that came to mind is something that you do all the time when you have performances or parents coming in or anything. You are always so um, conscious or conscientious about translating the program into Spanish for the families, which is just huge. Um, so anything like that where parents are coming in, just make sure that there are translations available for them just so they can feel a part of it. 
um, in any situation is really makes me happy to see. Um, in the classroom, I haven't been in a music room for years, so I'm not really sure um, what all goes on. Well, come on by anytime. I, I should. That would be really fun. Um, but yeah, anything when you're doing lessons, make sure there is context to what you're doing. Um, if you're doing something and you know, maybe this is a word that some of the um, English learners are going to have trouble with, just build some background about it or use it just like five minutes before any lessons. I will tell this to any teacher, just take a minute, think about what words you're going to use, what words you want the kids to be able to use and try to troubleshoot beforehand which ones might trip them up and provide examples and contacts and pictures as much as possible is really key. One of the things that one of the things I can't I can't get over is wh- whether we're talking about students with disabilities or students who are English learners or whatever, whenever we're trying to help a student be successful, so much of the time it's things that help everyone be successful, which I just, I mean, if I'm thinking, if if I'm trying to introduce this new vocabulary word, um, like for instance, my first experience working with an English learner was my junior year of undergrad. We, for educational psychology, we had a lab where we volunteered um, in downtown Columbus. And part of my job was in the music classroom. And part of my job was helping a third grade student who didn't speak any English learn third grade vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And I, here's, you know, 20-year-old Bryson doesn't know any Spanish. You know, I'm like trying to teach vocabulary to a student who we don't have the same working relationship yeah. or work work in language. And just like what you're thinking, what I'm thinking in my classroom, if I'm in- introducing a new instrument or new something like that, don't just say the word. Put the word on the yeah. board. Show a picture <laughs> of the word. Bring out a bring out an instrument and play it. That not only is that going to help our English learners, that's going to help all of our students create a more lasting wow. connection to what the information being taught. But it's also going to provide a lot of context to help all students be successful, especially those that are learning. English. Yeah, I say all the time, <laughs> teaching English learners is just good teaching. That's all it is. You are co- you're thoughtful about what you're doing. You're thinking ahead of what's going to be a problem in your building backgrounds. It's just good practice. Yeah, I like that. It's just good practice. So much of what I, whenever I, you know, chat with other music educators or or other educators and we talk about, you know, what's working, so much of it is so universal because I I truly believe that good teaching is just good teaching. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So, Betha, where can teachers of all subject areas look for more resources on English Yeah, um, my favorite website is colorincolorado.org, which it's Spanish, but in English, it's colorincolorado.org. Um, and it just has so many tips. There's articles about language acquisition and supporting newcomers in your classroom, supporting uh, long-term ELs in your classroom. It's just full of resources. That's probably the best one that I can recommend to anybody. Awesome. I will be sure to put the link in that um, into the show notes so people can check that out. And I'm definitely going to check it out as soon as we awesome. get done. <laughs> All right, Betha, if you could sum up the best practices for teaching students who are English learners in one sentence, what would it be? One sentence. Um... I know I'm asking a hard <laughs> question at the end. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, what we already talked about, build that background knowledge, um, activate their prior knowledge. If they have prior knowledge in the subject you're talking about, make sure you bring that into the conversation um, and visuals and just be really thoughtful of 
what your vocabulary aims are for the lesson. That was a really long sentence, but <laughs> that's what I would say. Hey, one sentence is one sentence. One that's sentence right. is one sentence. I didn't say it couldn't be run on sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so Betha, thank you so much for chatting with me. I, I know I personally really, I learned a lot and we, you know, we work yeah. together. So I, I really appreciate you chatting with me and helping me and my classroom, as well as the classroom of all of my listeners to be a little bit more inclusive and, and, and help for, for those students that are learning. English. I am very happy to help. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. If you found this episode helpful at all, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only does this help me understand what you find most helpful, it also helps more music educators just like you find the podcast. To check out the show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned, head on over to thatmusicteacher.com slash show notes.